listeners, welcome to the Lone Screenplay Nominee Podcast, where we talk about films that were solely nominated for an Oscar in the writing categories. I'm your host, Matthew Anderson, and today we have Isaiah Washington, who is an aspiring screenwriter and awards season junkie. Uh, welcome to the show, Isaiah. How are you doing today? Hello, I'm doing great. How about yourself? Uh, doing good. Uh, just, uh, uh, do, uh, just a bit snowed in. Um, after we record for the podcast, I got to go outside and, uh, start shoveling some more. Uh, yeah, we're having a bit of a snowstorm here in Pennsylvania as of recording this, but, uh, yeah, but outside of that, I'm just, uh, getting caught up on, on some movies I got to get caught up on for some award stuff. Uh, and yeah, that's pretty much it. So, yeah. Sounds like fun. I wish I was in Pennsylvania. That's actually where I'm from. Oh wow! I didn't. Okay, wow! I didn't know. Uh, well, I well, well. If you're familiar with Pennsylvania, you'll know that uh, you know, especially around this uh, snowy season, the roads can be very slick, and we're known for having a lot of uh, potholes that our damn community can't fix. So, oh yes, the potholes are the worst. Those yeah. are the worst, and because um, I'm from Chester, Pennsylvania, and. One of the things that me and my family, we talk about a lot down here in South Carolina is my dad, he loves making fun of people for like not knowing how to drive in the snow. And since I was raised most of my life down here, I'm exactly one of those type of people. So, but I yeah. can actually use some good snow because it's in South Carolina, the weather is bipolar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 it's, it was funny. Yeah. Cause the, the whole time I've been in Pennsylvania for all my life until Stevenson, I didn't realize that, you know, other states have their own issues like Maryland. People don't know how to how to park their damn cars. Uh, <laughs> you know, Pennsylvania has potholes, you know, and I'm like, what the hell? What's going on here? Um, you know, anyways. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, like I said, uh, before we dive into our episode, I just want to I have a, our typical questions. I, I usually ask our guest, Isaiah, and I'd like to throw to you uh, for you to answer. Would you care to explain to our audience what exactly it is you do for a living? Yes. Yeah, so right now I just graduated or actually finished my classes at the Los Angeles Film School. My major was for writing for film and television. Right now I'm in the process of getting a substitution job, uh, freelance for teaching around my area, hopefully in order to teach English and media as I get into the process of hopefully getting into my screenwriting career soon, whether it's a production assistant or writing assistant job to get my foot in the door. As of right now, yes, that is my process. I haven't graduated yet. My graduation is not until April, but right now I just finished with my courses and in the current application process of becoming a substitute teacher. Oh, nice. So yes. All right. Nice. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I graduated from Stevenson with a uh, film and moving image degree with writing and producing. Um, it was uh, yeah, no, that 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 shit's tricky. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, the, especially especially having to do capstones while you're trying to take classes with your other stuff like you got other projects you have to finish up. Um, but but yeah, no, some of it was very fun. Film school can be very expensive, but they they you know it's it's worth it for if you want to know the technical details of how to do certain things um if anything it, it got me to appreciate a lot of uh art house movies and also i have a couple books on screenwriting as well yes like sid field uh screenwriting i have save the cat save so, the cat so yeah, of course that, yeah that's yeah it's really helpful um but yeah no yeah like i said it it's it, it like i said very expensive Glad I did my time. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I enjoyed it myself. So I, the other question I want to ask is, it's always tough to ask someone what their favorite film it is because there's like thousands upon thousands of films to really go for, you know, whether whatever it is. And I might as well just ask a different question or slightly different and ask what's your favorite genre of film? Thank God you asked for that because favorite film is definitely a enigma of a question because one day you might be feeling this answer the other day you might be feeling another answer from something that came out decades ago but as far as genres go 
my heart will always be with action films. I love action filmmaking from the early days of Dr. No to the recent days of Top Gun Maverick from a few years ago. It's crazy to think that movie came out almost two years ago now. Yeah. Action films just have visual language that they're able to display in moving the characters forward. I'm a character guy and some of the most iconic and well-written characters of all times. I think of someone like Henry Jones Jr. from Indiana Jones, or I think of someone like Ethan Hunt, James Bond, as recent as someone like a Tony Stark, and how visual styles and motifs are able to push a character forward into overcoming and, and be able to achieve a goal with adversity. I also think of people like Furiosa from Mad Max Fury Road. And I know that that is a movie that is going to have another uh, spinoff with Furiosa as a younger version of herself, really just signifying how impactful and memorable that character was. I'm just a huge action junkie, and I just love the, 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 the style, the expression. It gives directors, writers, as well as cinematographers a way to be able to push the boundaries of filmmaking and how to become creative in new innovative ways, both behind the scenes and, of course, in front of the final product. Yeah, action can be a really helpful uh, – it's a really good genre that you can get a lot of great stuff out of. It's also where you can get a lot of lazy shit too, um, you know, like – Oh, yeah. Like all the films, uh, you know, low-rent DVD, uh, straight-to-video kind of stuff. Um, the, the two comments I did want to make about action, uh, you know, you talked about, you know, you get a lot of really interesting characters from these action genres, I guess one that technically would be count as an action that immediately came to my mind was the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where it's like, there's a lot of, you know, the characters are moving through the scenes with a lot of Mm -hmm. action going on. Um, you know, obviously it's a sci-fi fantasy, you know, adventure film, but still there's. You know, you could definitely tell what a character is doing by the way that they react to certain situations, um, especially within action sequences. You know, like Speed, for example, is one, uh, or even Die Hard actually is another one. Um, Classic. Yeah, and and even the other one I was going to bring up, and you brought this up too. Uh, one of my film professors, or one of my uh, film teachers at school at Stevenson had said for editing, if you want to see the history of action itself, like especially not just the way that action is shown, but even just the way it's cut together, uh, watch all the Bond films from like, you know, Dr. No, yes. No Time to Die or onwards, um, wherever the, the Bond franchise is going to be going on from here is a mystery at, uh, at the moment. But it's interesting to see how even just the Craig Bond films, they were shot and edited, you know, very much within their own time span of like, 2006 was like right when Batman Begins came out. Quan Masalos was like right around with that like fast cut, you know, quick cut kind of action where he can't born what's going ultimatum. on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then like uh, uh, Skyfall, you have a lot of this like really great cinematography from Roger Deakins, Horta Van Hoytema with uh, Spectre, who may or may not get an Oscar for uh, Oppenheimer. Fingers crossed. We'll see. Um, we don't know. Uh, anything could happen. After all, we all thought Top Gun Maverick was going to get nominated last year and win the Oscar, but oops. That was um, sad. That was very yeah. sad. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the story off air about that one. Uh, and then, yeah, like I said, it's just it's really interesting to see how the action genre has unfolded over the past like 40, 50 years plus. And I, you know, I would love to see more and more, uh, you know, obviously with, you know, as much as we're always pushing for more um, uh, more things for the academy to uh, recognize for the the cra- uh, for the academy. It would be nice for them to recognize the stunt uh, men and stunt women uh, for as well, sure because they have risked their their necks, their lives, and uh, their time they put into to make uh, entertaining uh, art, even if it is just a fluffy piece of action like Fast Ten. Um, <laughs> But yet they're, but yet they're, they're still, they're, they still got to plan this shit out to be like, all right, we got to make sure this is, ex- you know, what we want to give to the audience. So, yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, no, good, yeah, good pick for for action though. That's that's really good. Thank you. So, uh, but while speaking of action or you know character uh, uh, 
Driven Films. We're here to talk about a 1996 film, Lone Star, in which it not really isn't an action film. It's more of a drama. But anyways, yeah, so we're here to talk about uh, John Sayles' uh, 1996 film, Lone Star. This won't be a beat-by-beat bulletin point presentation like you hear on other channels, but we will de- we will be discussing major spoilers for our uh, t- talk or discussion. If you haven't seen the film yet and want to hear our full thoughts on it, watch the film first and then come back to hear us talk about it. Uh, last time I checked, it was on YouTube for free with ads. Uh, it's also on uh, Tubi, I think, as well, with ads as well, so... Um, that's how I saw the movie was on Tubi. So if you get a chance, uh, find a way to, uh, watch it and, um, yeah. And then, yeah, like I said, come back and hear us talk about it in, in full. So I'll just go through with the production notes on the film, uh, which I'll, I'll try to be brief with it. Uh, with this being an independent production, it's a bit tough to find in-depth details on said film. Lone Star made an estimate of $13 million on a uh, on a budget of three, $3 to $5 million as a whole and received positive reviews from critics, including uh, the film being on Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel's top 10 list of 1996. Outside of a few critics groups mentions it got, it was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Screenplay a Writers Guild of America nomination for Original Screenplay, a Critics' Choice Award nomination for Best Picture, a BAFTA nomination for Original Screenplay, and also was nominated for the Academy Award for the Original Screenplay category, of course. Uh, It was also nominated for three Independent Spirit Awards, including Lead Actor for Chris Cooper, Supporting Actress for the late Elizabeth Pena, and screenplay. Elizabeth Pena did win her category, but her co-star Chris Cooper accepted on her behalf as she was delivering one of her kids at the time. Uh, she was pregnant with... I cannot remember for the life of me who it was. Um, I think it was. It might have been Joey. I could be Ooh. wrong, but anyways. Um, but yeah, no, that was an interesting fact I found out. I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's nice. I um, like it. Yeah. So, yeah, as far as the logline of the film is, for in case anyone's wondering, like, Matt, what's the premise of the story? What's the, the, you know, the plot of it? So the premise of Lone, St- uh, of Lone Star is when the skeleton of his murdered pre- uh, predecessor is found, Sheriff Sam Deeds unearths many other long-buried secrets in his, Tex- in his Texas border town. Uh, along the way, we have a colonel who comes back into his hometown where uh, he's being assigned to uh, lead a, a small, oh, what was it? Uh, lead his own uh, mili- lead a military group there. And there uh, seems there ends up being a uh, uh, an incident at a, at a local bar involving one of his military uh, comrades. And so he's trying to figure out what went down and such. Um, Joe Morton is the actor who plays the colonel. So yeah, so it all ties in together. Uh, eventually in the film and it really talks about how you know un, you know uncovering a past may lead to some dark secrets and there's some uh secrets you want to bear you know kept uh keep buried or have uh kept buried or and there's also some secrets that you just want to take with you for the rest of your life so yeah that's pretty much the the premise of the film in a nutshell for lone star uh before i give my thoughts on this film i want to ask isaiah was this your first time seeing the movie uh if uh so how was this uh has this improved for you on a rewatch this is actually my second time watching the film so this was my rewatch i rewatched it earlier today before recording my first time watching this was actually a part of a school assignment back in 2021 it's interesting um i was on a trip to disney world and of course with my classes it's online so there was a part of me that was like okay do i just want to bring my laptop with me or do i just want to do all my work later on when i get back home i was like okay no let me just bring my laptop do my work here at disney in the resort and hope uh the airbnb that we were in i stayed up late to watch lone star and when i was watching this film it was for a class, I believe, uh, my dialogue class. And even though 
this film is something that is incredible within its dialogue for its characters. What really struck me and the reason why I chose to do this film with you is because of its structure and how it moves within its first, second, and third act. I think this is a wonderful premise that requires its audience to really take time to pay attention. It's not really a laid back film, maybe compared to some of its competition that we will later on talk about with its Oscar nomination for screenplay that yeah. year. It is a movie that juggles multiple characters, which I love, big ensembles. It is a character-driven film with the main protagonist, Sam Deeds, and his complicated, complex journey into trying to discover, does he really want to know the truth or does he want to know kind of the shadow of what he has been in within his father, buddy deeds, within his life. I really enjoy how this film begins and how it ends. I love the commentary of what it has to say on race relations, both within the 1950s to the 90s, and even how relevant it is today with immigration um, when it comes to the way how African-Americans interact, even within being minorities within a town that is also populated with minorities, as well as the school system. I really, really love this story. It takes a lot of time to be patient with, but the payoff is outstanding when you really get a good hook on the inciting incident right in the first few minutes of the film, knowing that it's a mystery, but it's also a Western. But then there are areas with the Pilar character played by uh, Pina where it's also a bit of a Romeo and Juliet romance that John Sayles talks about in his interview. Yep. Yeah, I, um, uh, this was my first watch that I'd seen of, uh, Lone Star. Anytime, I swear to God, for years, ever since I, I saw the title Lone Star, I immediately thought of, uh, who was it? Dark Helmet from Spaceballs, where he's like, Lone Star. <laughs> That's all I kept thinking of. Like, like, oh, okay, it's just about Lone Star. That's all. Um, but no, I I will admit I I didn't I, I, I could definitely see the passion that you have for the film because I, I definitely saw those elements in there, especially with the really excuse me. <laughs> having a hard time speaking today. Race relations within the film. Uh it, you know, how it does the uh the the ensemble uh, stuff, especially with the the sins of the father and the sins of the son. Um, you know, him not being like his father, you know, or so he assumes, so to speak. And there's a lot in there that I think is interesting to that John Sales is trying to say. I just think my biggest issue with the film is really the pacing. Like I, I actually was more gripped with the film in the first half of the film um, on my first watch, just because I didn't know where the story was going. I was, I wasn't necessarily expecting like a shootout at the end, uh, so to speak, or like this big at blown action sequence, but I was thinking like, okay, can we, I, we're, we're kind of slowing down here. Let's let's start let's start picking some stuff up. Let's you know let's try to quick the pace a little bit with this the the second half. Um, but I I was engaged at least with the first half enough to where I was like okay this is actually pretty engaging enough like the, it's you could tell the dialogue feels very natural with these characters and on top of that I you know what's funny is I didn't I don't know if you or any of your classmates had thought about this or uh, had talked about this but it's funny when it's doing the transitions between the present to the past mm -hmm. and it's talking from everyone's point of view about how much of an asshole uh this this uh, this guy was played by uh chris christopherson um it it's funny how it reminded me a lot of sheriff wade have you ever seen a, a i'm sorry uh character sheriff wade, uh wade charlie wade yes I was, he was... yeah i was trying to find out yeah uh, thanks. Yeah, Charlie Wade. Um, it's funny how it, the structuring of it reminded me a lot of a soldier story. Have you ever seen that movie? I actually have not seen the a soldier story in its entirety. I've seen clips and segments of it, but not it's in its entirety. No. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll try not to to reveal too much of it, but it it shares a similar like structure pattern, so to speak, mm -hmm. with that. Um, and watching this. Yeah, like I said, it was like a really, like really, you know, big ensemble, um, and just like Soldier Story, there's also some actors here that you know would go on to do other things. 
Chris Cooper's in this one. Um, in uh, the uh, Lone Star, you got Joe Morton who was in uh, Terminator Two. You have mm-hmm. Francis McDormand playing uh, in her one scene. Uh, I'm trying to think who it was that she played. Da, 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 da. Where's the cast? It's on here. Was his wife? Yeah. It, well, yeah. Um, uh, uh, Bunny, Bunny. That's who. It was. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so you have her um, who's in it for like one scene, and then she goes on to win the Oscar for the same year for <laughs> uh, Fargo. Um, so, yeah. So you have her, uh, obviously, the late Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth Pena, who's in this, uh, and even Matthew McConaughey as Buddy Deeds is like yeah. has a couple of scenes in the movie, and I'm like, I don't know why. Maybe it's just because of like, oh yeah, I keep forgetting. Like, not only does he did he do a couple of dramas here and there before he did those shitty rom coms, but like. I kept expecting or waiting to to see more of McConaughey in it for like, you know, big like a big argumentative mo- argument uh, argument between him and his, his son, um, but I I guess they just didn't see his his potential as an actor of that kind of actor until later on in life. Um, but it was definitely a small role for yeah. uh, McConaughey, especially considering how. And this is not to say anything bad about Matthew McConaughey. I actually think he's a phenomenal actor, but he of course was not the actor that we know of him today. He was younger. He was in that time period known as the all right, all right, all right type of guy. And also on the cusp of his rom-com era, but considering the role and how he didn't have the acting experience that he did then as he would with something like an interstellar or Dallas buyers club. I thought he was very good uh, given the material that he was, he had, it was small, but he stood out. And every time I saw a flashback with him, it always just made me think, Oh, I cannot wait until we get back to this character. Cause he only has a few scenes in the film, but every time he's on screen, he's so captivating and you really do, you wonder like is this a guy who while yes he was a good man to these people and to these citizens especially compared to the sheriff wade character such a black and white type of comparison but you also wonder like what is this why is he the suspect what makes him so mysterious is he capable of murdering somebody and as you figure out more and more that he had in his life with secrets and affairs and some of the rules that he bended it it kind of does give you that intrigue and i think matthew mcconaughey just puts the cherry on top of what is already great written material and just takes advantage of it and just gives all of the charm all of the the cool relaxed nature that you feel whenever he's kind of like at this antagonist hero villain type of rivalry with the charlie wade character who i also agree is wonderfully played by chris christopherson as well great antagonist villain actually yeah i um yeah no yeah uh, yeah um (laughs) Yeah, no, I thought I thought I did think Chris Christopherson did a good job. Um, I was a little bit worried that his character was going to be a bit too much in terms oh, I of agree. Like, playing the character over the top, but he was just like just enough within the writing of like, okay, like he's not like he is very much like a a, a son of a bitch, but it's not too <laughs> overbearing or it's not like you know like well we, he's we not a caricature yeah it's like what we got ourselves here is a an, an inmate who doesn't know how to do the rules and i was like okay that now i was i was glad he, he didn't do that so um mm-hmm. but the other the one actor who did impress me in terms of his uh act actually there's two um and they were on the the charlie rose interview that impressed me the lot the most of the uh actors was uh uh chris cooper i thought he was really good i, I don't know how far he was into his career as an actor. Um, he might have just done. Yeah, he only did like a couple roles. This might have been the one that was like a standout for him or like, oh, OK, like this guy might be something one day. Um, and then the other actor who impressed me was uh, Joe Morton. I thought he was pretty good in the movie. Like there's the, uh, there's a scene that he has in the bar when he's trying to uh, 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 get questions out of his dad who owns the bar. Um played by mm-hmm. uh 
uh, Clifton, G- uh, no, no, it's uh, Ron Canada is the actor. Yes. Um, and uh, and yeah, the, Joe Martin and, and Ron Canada have a really good scene in the movie. Um, and it's even funny too because when I saw Ron Canada in the film, I'm like, he looks so familiar. What have I seen him in? And the uh, the only one I could think of at the moment besides being in um uh, uh I'm looking through here. He was in Wedding Crashers and and uh great uh, character actor. Yeah, and and the but really the biggest one I I recognize him from was in uh oh god who was it National Treasure, he was he yes. was one of the the security guards who was uh, you know uh telling them to, you know lock down the building you know we the the Declaration of Independence has been stolen by Nicholas Cage, <laughs> um and uh but yeah no yeah good character actor too, um and everyone else does a good enough job with the movie, uh you know uh I'm I'm looking through uh. Yeah, Elizabeth Pena does a good job, and yeah, like I said, just just like a really solid ensemble as a whole. Um, yeah, like yeah, like I said, just just really, you know, it's like I said, it's it, the the biggest issue that that kept me from enjoying it or loving it as much as everyone else was really the pacing, particularly in the second half of the story, because I I just wish that we had been able to, per, like, we had been able to pick it up a little bit especially when we're getting closer to the end and i i I just wanted a little bit more out of it Uh, i did think it was a little bit surprising when it was revealed that it wasn't mcconaughey it wasn't uh the the dad who had shot uh charlie wade but it was the uh hollis uh the uh, partner of his the deputy yeah the deputy yeah i was like oh wow shit okay wasn't expecting that um i actually it's, it's funny you say that because i actually like at a certain point in the film and this is probably before we got to the midpoint i knew it wasn't buddy like i knew it wasn't him i think but you always knew that buddy was somehow involved within the cover-up of mm-hmm. the murder because nowadays you would look at it and you're just like Okay, that's clearly self defense. Like, how 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 are you gonna like cover that up? But those times were different. And when you look at the high status that Charlie Wade had at that time, it's understandable why they would do such a thing. The surprise, however, was not necessarily who did it, but how they covered it up and what was the final result on the Sam character. Because you just saw it in the actors' faces, and especially with Canada, like just prepared for their fate, like, oh my God, we're about to go to jail, it's all over. But then he makes that final decision to be able to accept that it's this is something that is not worth fighting against. Because it's ultimately it's a film about legacy as well and protecting someone's legacy and having that honor you see that same type of parallel when you look at the legacy between dell and his son chet and that generation that also over carries to canada's character the dad the grandfather as well and you also see it within pilar and senora cruz and how that also reflects and ties in within the immigration part with, I believe, the, the Ernest, um, um, the Enrique, sorry about that, I almost called him a different name, Enrique character, and how that also ties in with the buddy deeds. And it's, it's fascinating because Cooper, this is where the great storytelling and screenwriting comes in, how you, you come in looking for something. Cooper has a want. He wants to have an exposing of his father. He wants to expose what his father did because you know him and his father, he had they had a lot of friction, as you would see with other parents in this movie as well. But the movie ends with him having a want and then having a need. And then he discovers that even though he wanted something, what he needs is to be able to honor his father. Yes, it can get ugly. Yes, the truth can get bad. The truth is ugly. And the truth is something that has been manipulated in this town for years and years and decades, generations. But he takes and makes a decision that is able to have honor for the generation before him, but 
also find the truth for himself. Yeah, I, I come to think of it, yeah, protecting a legacy and you know trying to make sure it, it isn't uh, desecrated upon that that actually is an interesting uh, theme that is carried throughout the film, especially with um, covering up the the secret of the fact that spoiler alert, uh, it <laughs> was uh, Sam Deeds and Pilar are uh, half siblings, which uh, yeah, yeah, that was. That was interesting to, to bring that up. I thought, hmm, okay. Um, and uh, yeah, it, I mean, that would make sense as to why they're like, yeah, you guys cannot be together because because of this, you know, this issue here. It's like, no, I don't care. No, no way. Um, you talk about Romeo and Juliet, and ugh. that's what John Sayles was talking about. I got some Oedipus vibes with that. I was like, yeah. good lord. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> Romeo and Juliet in uh in Virginia. <laughs> you know. Um, Alabama, my lord. Yeah, there you go. That that's the other one. Um Yeah. But so Yeah, go ahead. You want to know something that makes it so fascinating? And I'm not going to speak for you, but I want to hear your opinion after I say this. Even at the end, it's not John Sales' job to try to convince me that, okay, this is disgusting, or no, they're in love. Yeah. He gives you the facts, and he allows you to watch these characters where they end, and he lets you decide. There's no manipulation. Yeah. There's no type of gospel preaching sermon to you. No, that's, that's, not, that's not the case. It, lets, it displays to you what is the truth, and it lets you decide on how you go forward. And as with me, I'm not saying that I agree, but I was very much in content to where those characters ended because I understood where they were coming from. And I understood that they have not known this for years, decades, since in high school. And they don't view themselves as these siblings and people with overlapping or not overlapping generation but cross generations and how you you see this i wouldn't say hypocrisy but this complexity within the characters because when you figure out that deeds the the woman that he had on the sides all this time was senora cruz you you kind of see this shame that is seen on both sides of the party within those generations. When you look at Senora Cruz, one of the reasons why I think she's one of the more interesting characters of the ensemble is because she was, she's a woman who prides herself so much on, I built this business from the ground up so I can give other people an opportunity so they don't have to uh, be these illegal immigrants. And it, it, a lot of things that you would hear that would sound like how, some people would say nowadays who aren't Mexican or who aren't from the South America area that would criticize so many people for crossing the border only to realize that was her story as well. She witnessed people that she loved gone and people were able to reach out a hand and help her. And that's something that I think is more of an epiphany to why these characters had their eventual arcs. People like a uh, Pilar, people like Del, people like Sam, where there's kind of the shame from where they come from, or they, they they kind of did like just this anger, resentment, but they are able to find peace because they realize that there is this cathartic truth that they're exposed to. Yes, it, it can be ugly at times, and it can be very contradicting, but it allows them to be able to move on for themselves and have that release, that type of, I can be able to take this weight off of my shoulders that I've been carrying for so long. And, 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 and in a sense, almost like a bit of their own type of salvation that they are able to continue with. That's why, for me, I was convinced that, okay, these two did do love each other, even though they're half-siblings. I, I definitely agree with you that that sales. I never really got the intention of sales was trying to manipulate us and be like, "Ooh, you want them to be together." It was very much like at the end, like the, especially with the way he framed it, mm -hmm. he was trying to be like, "What do you, you know? Do you think these these two should be together?" And it, yeah, it didn't really 
paint it like an over sappy romantic you know no. movie uh with with the romance which i was actually glad he didn't do um but yeah it does it he does challenge you as a as an audience member for sure and i i appreciate that john sales does that for sure uh one of my favorite scenes of the movie well actually one of my favorite elements of the film that i did want to bring up was uh i love how he opens the film with uh almost these like two shakespearean like characters that you'd see and Mm -hmm. you know they're just out like searching for uh uh for cactus and you know agave and you know you know bullets and then yeah the guy's looking for bullets for his little art collection then he sees the 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 skull and i thought yeah this is a really good opening i really loved how you framed it i love the dialogue and i even loved how he transitions us into these you know the past like with the older gentleman at the uh the the restaurant and then the camera sort of you know pans over and you know moves into the table and you know Mm -hmm. you can see the actor sort of stepping out of frame for mcconaughey's character to come into play and then you know the camera goes back Mm -hmm. up to him and i thought that was really cool and even the the bridge sequence where the driver gets shot by uh chris christopherson's character oh yeah i I was aware of what was going to happen in that scene, but at the same time, it was kind of like, oh, wow, that's kind of shocking. And uh, yeah, that guy, man, the guy under the bridge, I guess he he got kind of lucky of being alive because he was able to witness that. Um, through some that was that was one of the things that I liked so much about this screenplay is because sometimes and I, I remember saying this with uh, a buddy of mine about when we were talking earlier about topping up Maverick. Sometimes what makes a great screenplay isn't necessarily about what you do. Sometimes it's about what you don't do and how you don't decide to play into the trappings of the generic tropes or the type of jump scares or the type of shock values that you would see on that bridge sequence. It's, it's fascinating because even if you see what's happening or what's coming a mile away, I think what makes that scene so impactful is that you finally see from Hollis's perspective that lays foundation and plants seeds for his ultimate decision that he commits later on into the film. He's a character who's just been not necessarily passive because he spoke his mind, but has been shot down, no pun intended, time and time and time again, where now it's almost a point of no return. Like you can't, this is something that you can't overlook. And there's going to come a point in time where he's going to cross the line. You're going to have to make a decision. Are you going to let him keep on doing this and harming people? Or are you going to step up and do something? That's one of the things that I love. And you see that so many times throughout this film with the the camera movements and the, the, the editing where it, there are like these, seeds and these types of Easter eggs that are planted all over the place. And as the film goes on, it connects itself back and reveals itself through visual storytelling. It doesn't tell you, it shows you mm-hmm. even when, when it comes to some of the people in the army and how they are connected within the shooting. And we see, of course, with the Priscilla Worth character actually in a relationship with this young how, uh, with this uh, other type of um, military official that we see in the beginning. And it, it's just so, so beautiful into how it just all wraps itself so beautifully and completely, even if there are bumps in the roads. Because I, from a constructive criticism perspective, I will not deny that by the time you get into the third act, I kind of forgot, like, wait, is this movie a mystery film is it is this something that we're still doing or are we focusing on the romance it it can get a bit lost i will admit and i think that's more from a directorial perspective and an editorial perspective that i think that there are probably some aspects that don't work as well as others one of the aspects that i noticed was this character um, this army re- recruit character played by Chandra uh, Wilson, of course, best known from Grey's Anatomy. Well, this yep. was a younger version of her. And I'm not saying that the sequences 
from her were uninteresting, but those were sequences to where I think it was something that I can understand why it may not work for other people who may have found it to be a bit meandering. I don't think that because I think it still worked well within the film's narrative, but I can also understand how someone may come at it as it could have been a little bit tighter. It could have been more like condensed. So whenever we get to that climactic scene at the end, we don't feel like we've been waiting forever or lost or, oh yeah, this is about a murder mystery. Yeah, that was definitely a subplot of the story. I'm like, up to a point i'm like okay what's the purpose here to this subplot because i it it all it was to me at first was just like an incident of like how to get the the father interacting with his own father um mm-hmm. at the bar which i thought okay like that led to that really good scene with joe morton and uh uh ron canada but yeah mm-hmm. I, I was a little bit confused as to like what else was there to tell from this this uh story but um i think to answer your question and I'm not trying to like convert you to my side, but no, that's fine. just giving you just giving you my perspective. I wonder because the film is trying so hard to juggle so many themes, and it does work, but it, yeah. it, it's a very tight tight rope that it's walking, where it also involves you within the politics of the town and do we need another jail when it comes to the racism when it comes to some of the behind the scenes and how do things work in town with her her character her private character being this army recruit and you see how there's this very wonderful scene that she has with the Dell character Colonel Dell character where she talks about a lot of the systemical racist aspects of who we are, what our place is. You do this, you follow orders, then you get promoted under their terms. Yes, it was a bit pessimistic, but I do believe, and this is just from my personal opinion, that there is some truth to what she was saying and how that also reflects within the town itself. You follow orders, you do these things, you get rewarded. I saw that same thing when I saw the uh, sheriff and how he was treating minorities with blacks or Mexicans who were crossing the border or who were just in their own bars trying to enjoy themselves. You follow these orders, you get promoted under my systems. And that's one of the reasons why I thought to myself, okay, there's great payoff with this character and how she also reflects with Colonel Dell and to him being able to go for his own type of uh, forgiveness within his father as well as in himself. Because it was the one point of the scene where there's this <laughs> there's this funny joke where it says, and forgive me for my language, I'm just repeating what the film said yeah, no, for fine. context. It says there's this uh, one guy who they're running with, the the man who loves to collect bullets. He talk about how with Colonel Dell, that guy can crack a walnut with his ass, and yeah. I thought that was so funny because he is kind of this tight wide character who like dude have you ever been held like are you someone who's like not a robot you can't even connect with your own son like like how why are you like this and even though he's a jerk you understand why because his father abandoned him and that scene that he has with the private with her character you understand that he is now making an effort to try to understand someone from a humanity perspective he's not trying to condemn he's not trying to be harsh he's actually allowing his heart to be open to see someone else's perspective and how okay even though i may disagree with you on some aspects we're a unit and we're supposed to have each other's backs and i'm going to not kick you out of the army it it, it allows for himself to be able to have a heart and have some humanity within him again it it's a lot i don't disagree with you that that actually is a good point. I mean, it does tie into it. It's one of the the few things that does have uh, Delmore try to open up a bit more to his son and actually try to you know get some you know per, get a personal connection with him rather than just a a, a strictly you know military like 
relationship with him where he's just like, you know, uh, even though mm-hmm. you're my son, you're still under my house. You got to follow these rules. You know, you mm-hmm. can't do you can't do track and field because you have a B average, you know, because <laughs> you have to go higher than that because, you, you know, these schools will not accept the B average. So, yeah, no, Man, I, no, I, I, like I said, I, I get it. If I had a B average, my parents would throw an entire Super Bowl New Year's Eve party. My Lord, if I had a B average in high school. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So while we're at it, uh, let's get to our uh, final thoughts on the overall film, and then we'll talk about some of the awards prospects for for Lone Star. Um, Anything you'd like to share with your final thoughts on the film? I was a huge, huge fan of the Pilar character, wonderfully played by Elizabeth Binya. I think that yeah. she had, she was kind of the heart of the film. A lot of people talk about Chris Cooper, and yes, Chris Cooper is really good in this role. But for yeah. me, she's kind of the backbone beating heart into what connects everybody. There's this wonderful scene in the beginning that involves this kind of uh, either a PTA or parent like conference where they debate so much about like history and you have your parent who is not for this and you're trying to brainwash our kids with lies. How can you call me ignorant? And you have other people, you have the white lady who is actually defending the truth and how we should expand upon it and with other parents. And Elizabeth Pena's character, Pilar, she's just kind of this moderate peacekeeper who is trying to be able to show that, yes, what our town is beautiful and we should be proud of our town, but there's nothing wrong with exposing and learning more about the truth I, and how relevant that is nowadays. I, when one of my old schools from another dist- a school that was in my district there was this recent news about how it involved this uh, critical race theory book and how the parents were so upset and they called meetings about it. And yes, whether you agree or disagree, the fact is to this day, this movie that came out almost 20 years ago to this day, we're still facing problems and we're still facing challenges of people and how they want to perceive the past. And should we talk about the past? Will the past make us feel guilty? Will it make us feel righteous? Are we being informed? Are we being misinformed? Those questions to no matter what side of your own, it still feels relevant to this day. And especially in these Southern areas where a lot of times these things that are explored within the past can be paint by a brush because of, I I would say a bit of it is ignorance. And also a lot of it is fear. You see it with the Sam character. You're fearful of the truth. You're fearful of what you are going to be exposed because how is that going to affect Again, your legacy, the legacy of the city, the legacy of the people, the legacy of the town. It, it's it's a wonderful theme. The, the legacy of how we view your own parents. I mean, even with me and the relationship that I have with my father and my mother and how much you, you want to live up to them. And yes, there can be issues along the way, but you also figure out that you're your own person. You're not the the shadow of the person that brought you in this world and how even though you're not their shadow, you can still carry and respect their impact and their legacy while also understanding that they weren't saints and they weren't perfect people, but nobody is perfect. And that's the beauty within all of us. Yeah. Everyone has their own version of a skeletons in the closet, essentially it's just mm-hmm. how high the bones are stacked. Um, yeah, no, I, um, yeah, like I said, I'm I I enjoyed parts of the film. I think everyone does a good job with their performance. I did like John Sales, some of his writing and the way he structured some of the scenes, especially in the first half. Um, I just I, I I do think it's you know the part of the reason why I couldn't get emotionally connected with the story as much as you, Isaiah. It's because of the pacing, and I think the pacing in the second half does kind of drag it down a little bit. Um, for me getting, you know, mostly connected, even though there's a lot of things in here that it is trying to say really effectively and is doing a pretty damn good job with it. Um, but yeah, no, I, like I said, it's it, still, I, I would recommend it if you're interested in this kind of movie. Um, 
you know, obviously by at this point, you should already have seen the film already, you know, especially with <laughs> some of the twisted turns. So it's like, okay, what, what the hell are you doing here? So, um, yeah, like I said, I, I'd still enjoy it. I, I still enjoyed it. And I, I would still recommend it. Uh, you know, um, just, uh, just be aware that it is a bit of a slow burn. So, um, yeah. All right. So, uh, like I said, this was nominated for its lone screenplay uh, Oscar for original screenplay. I want to throw the question to you, Isaiah. Did you think this was worthy of its lone nomination? Uh, and if so, uh, would you have picked? It, would you have you know nominated this for any other categories? The lone screenplay nomination for the Lone Star. Um, yeah. Hmm. Lone Star. Yes. I, Lone Star. <laughs> I do believe that this film 100% deserved its screenplay nomination because I, I looked at other screenplays that I've seen nominated in the past, and I can, yes, of course, no, no, in my opinion, no film is perfect. Even if you give a film a 10 out of 10, if I were to grade this film, I guess a 9 out of 10, no, no motion picture. It's perfect. But you have to ask yourself, is this one of the better versions or is this the best version that you think this film could have been under whatever circumstances that the production went through? Because with all due respect, you can tell that this was a low budget film and they had to get really creative within some of the aspects of its production value, which is one of the reasons why I can maybe understand why it wasn't a best picture nominee because it wasn't as big and flashy and production heavy and this carrying these uh big budgets like a Forrest Gump or if it's something like a Fargo which it was also nominated against for screenplay it wasn't yeah. like this like very flashy colorful cinematography type of work that would be with all due respect eye candy for people but i mean when you're roger dinkins i mean roger dinkins is just naturally like eye candy guy because he's just so talented but yes i do believe that this deserved a screenplay nomination it is everything that you wanted a great script outstanding inciting incident very well interesting protagonist great uh, structure first second third act the film has an incredible midpoint the character arcs have great payoffs in terms of what the character wants versus what the character needs its themes are relevant to this day that just really shows you the longevity of how much if you see this movie it really just makes itself set in stone into the relevance of the times that we live in as well as within the 90s as far as other nominations that's interesting uh as given how this was a year of five i can understand why it didn't get nominated for best picture i get it especially if i'm looking at the lineup but as far as something that i would probably consider heavily john sales was not only the director and the writer but he was also the editor yeah I love the editing of this film. I love the choices. I love how the film decides to just stay in those long transitions to the past and how it translates back into the present. Again, sometimes the best film editing, and you learn this from someone like a Michael Kahn or Thelma Schumacher, sometimes the best editing is the... Yep, yeah, yes, Walter Murch, or even who, yeah. Tom Cross. Uh, yep. When it comes, yeah, it's it's fabulous. Or as well as someone who may be a winner this year um, for Oppenheimer, Jennifer Lane. We don't know. That's, we don't know. It could. It could. Yeah, they can give it to right, Thelma Schoonmaker right. for all we know. They, yeah, you, you know what? You're absolutely right. It could. So I think that with all of these editors, you learn something that John Sayles also reflects too. Sometimes the best editing is not about what is always the flashy work. Sometimes the best editing is about how you just stay back, 
and just let the scene flow. Let it continue. Don't try to do all of these quick cuts and stuff like that. Quick cuts can work, but how does it reflect upon your narrative? And if this is a film that is not required for that, let it flow. I love the transitions. I love the way how it cuts to different scenes. I love how it balances all of these different types of storylines and connects it back together. I'm not saying that it is like this film, but I'm thinking of another motion picture that also won screenplay just a few years before, something like a Pulp Fiction to where you 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 have all of these different types of storylines and these that all interconnects into one. And even though this is a movie, it's not a non-linear story. It is a story that is juggling such a, a huge cast ensemble at any moment. It can lose you. It could make you uninterested. It can make you question the type of choices, even within the first act, which you enjoy. You enjoyed the first half of the film and you were engaged. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I believe the editing is so powerful. It even reminds me of something like a memento. Again, not a non-linear story, but something that it's these kind of like these short snippets of scenes. And it goes on to these different short snippets of scenes and it all builds up into one at the end. And the payoff is remarkable. That's one of the reasons why I think John Sayles would have been a great editing nominee. Uh, I'm looking at the nominations right now, and yeah, like, I am too. Oof. Wow, um, it's it's you understand you understand why this movie didn't get in. I would say that same thing for someone like Elizabeth Benya. Like you, I mean, shoot, with supporting actress, that was also a year where Regina King didn't even get nominated for Jerry Maguire. Like you, you understand. I yeah. mean, I'm looking at Joan Allen, like for The Crucible. I'm like, I I, I get it, I get it. I think the biggest issue the film had or might have been an issue for was that it wasn't as even though this was definitely the year of independent cinema, except for Jerry Maguire getting in for best picture. I think. Oh, for the, sure. The bigger issue was that these other films, English patient, Fargo, secret, secrets and lies and shine. They had a bit mm -hmm. more of a, uh, an Oscar push for the Oscars and they were able to get into other categories because they were, very popular English patient and uh, Fargo were definitely popular movies. And even Jerry Maguire was also a popular movie, you know, show me the money, um, you know, Tom, Cruise <laughs> yes. out, uh, you know, and him running through the airport. So, uh, you know, stuff like that. So yeah, I, I'm okay with it getting a lone screenplay nomination for sure. Cause I think that's definitely where the biggest prize or the biggest, reward to give it for if you're going to give it mm -hmm. for something and the fact that this did make money for such a small budget it's yeah it's like okay it's pretty impressive that they did it and like i said there are moments within the writing i thought were pretty good even the way that john sales had you know transition scenes from the, the present to the past and it also helped that um again we're recording this before oscar nominations are announced but it does help when your your script is written or has a hand uh, uh, has a, a like a writing hand by someone who is a previous Oscar nominee slash winner, because that also can help your chances out uh, depending on what the competition is and obviously the year. Um, so, yeah, that that really mm -hmm. that can help your chances. So. Um, yeah, like I said, probably just a lone screenplay nomination is fine. Um, you know, Chris Cooper, I could make a case for Chris Cooper, but that year was pretty stacked when you have again, yes. Tom Cruise, Ray Fiennes, Woody Harrelson, uh, Billy Bob Thornton, I thought was, you know, I'm not really Man. the biggest fan of Sling Blade, but I'm glad he at least got an Oscar for that. Whether it was either lead actor or adapted screenplay, I'm like, at least you, at least the guy went home with an Oscar. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm glad about that. Um, and then Jeffrey Rush won the Oscar for Shine because they like their biopic performances. <laughs> um, even though I've been told that's more of a supporting role than lead, but you know. Hey, whatever. you want to know something? Uh, time is funny because yeah. you also look at Chris Cooper's trajectory of his career when he goes later on to a role like Adaptation, which he yep. won for, which yep. I. And again, all due respect with Chris Cooper, I think that feels more like a career performance Oscar winning role 
And I think that Chris Cooper is definitely doing something in that role that he isn't doing as much here because this role is a little bit more reserved, which is sad because reserved performances are also something that may have not been as heavily acknowledged back in the day. That's one of the reasons why you hear nowadays the Oscar scene because people back in the day had the Oscar scenes. Like what Chris Cooper is doing, he doesn't have that flashy, like I'm quitting my job sequence from Jerry Maguire. And I would say that same thing for someone like uh, Elizabeth Binya, where, yes, she got the um, independent spirit win um, as well. That was also an interesting year, especially with Queen Latifah nominated for Set It Off. But you look at her performance, and even though like you see it in her eyes, like just this imagination and wonder that she has throughout the entirety of her scenes... You also know that it's not something that is as big and grandiose as we would look at with someone like a Joan Allen who is just the, who has the crying sequences and the scenes with Daniel Day Lewis and the during the days of the Salem witch trials, and it's it's just something that you. you I, I get why they didn't get nominated, but I, I think we have come a long way in terms of just recognizing actors with these reserved performances that don't go for those big flashy moments that are getting more recognized both in supporting and lead roles. Yeah. I mean, even look at last year's Oscars. Uh, you know, the fact that we had such a limited competition for lead actor, they managed to get Paul Mescal in for After Sun which is a very reserved performance, yeah. but they managed to get that elite actor nomination because it's like, who else is getting here? Tom Cruise? Hugh Jackman for the sun? I don't think so. <laughs> so. Um, now, yeah. I think we both have to agree. Let's, let's agree on one thing before yeah. you wrap this up. Yeah, sure. If Frances McDormand had more scenes, do you think she would have gotten a supporting actress? Uh, I'm looking through the lineup they had. I, I think she could have gotten a chance maybe if she had more scenes and had been a bit more showier. I do think it does, even though it was just like a lone screenplay nominee. Um, it, it also, I mean, also, yeah, I just think Fargo was just such a popular movie to where it was like, yeah, she's going to win the Oscar for this. Um, you know, I, Truth be told, I'm not really the biggest fan of the Coen brothers, period. Like, I, there's very few movies wow. that they've done. Yeah, they, there's been very few movies they've done that I've, I've actually liked. And funny enough, uh, the the only two to- the only two I could think of that are, like, some of the best of their work were ones where they both got d- nominated for director, which were <laughs> No Country for Old Men. Uh, yeah. I, st- I still think that's mm-hmm. their best movie they've done ever. Um, and it's also, it's probably the only one of the few of theirs I'm like, I could actually sit down and watch this and be like, yeah, it's not, you know, it's, it doesn't have their like, you know, quirkiness that I'm not really like, I'm okay with a, a bit of quirkiness like Wes Anderson, but it mm-hmm. just Fargo just had a bit too much for me. I was like, I, I, I can't get into this. I maybe I'll, I'll try to rewatch it down the road, but I, I remembered really not liking it at all. Um, and then the other one being true grit, I thought I rewatched that and that's actually held up pretty well. Um, but, but yeah, no, I'm it not sounds like to me that, Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, it, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, right, it sounds like to me that with um, with the Coens that you're a little bit more into their very commercial type of films. Because when I think of something like True Grit, of course, it's a it's a it's a remake of the classic John Wayne film and no country for old men to where like even though that film definitely challenges the commercial play because the movie doesn't really have much of a score and it's a a film where the bad guy kind of wins not even kind of it does and but i just think that it's very that's a that's a very interesting take and i can respect that i just think that with the bunny character I just think with the bunny character that just how she was written and how like big and type of like, uh, like she was someone on medication and very just all over the place. But you saw that she had a heart of gold and a true care for the Sam character, but just 
you could tell that things just didn't work out and not completely her fault. And she does display that well. Talk about a performance where like she has one scene, but she eats that scene up and leaves no crumbs. My Lord, she was cooking. So I can understand where you would come from if you would question that. I just think for me, if she would have had more scenes, especially just knowing how much Fargo was big, I could have seen like a double nomination for her that year, maybe. For sure. Um, I, funny enough, I actually, even though I, I'm not really the biggest fan of the two, well, two of her three acting wins she had, Fargo and Nomadland, mm-hmm. I'm just not the, big, the biggest fan of Nomadland either. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do really love her as an actress. Like she, it, it's funny, it wasn't until oh, yeah. she won her third Oscar for Nomadland, I realized looking back at her career, I'm like, you know, she she's able to play a lot of these characters with a lot of range, even in just like you said, small a small moment in and Lone Star, and she's able to do it without requiring like a lot of prosthetic or heavy makeup where a lot of actors yeah. would want to put on the, you know, the, the, uh, whatever it is, the old age makeup, give me the white hair, you know, give me, give me a, 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 a gut, a, a gut belly, you know, a dad bod and, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, make me, Big hands. make me ugly, you know, yeah, make me ugly, you know, like, uh, like some of these actors yeah. trying to get Oscars where it's like, okay, come on. Like you, you I, I've seen you, I've seen you act. You don't need all this shit on, but whatever. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, one no, of the, like I said, yeah, go ahead. One of the, um, Francis McDormand's probably one of the, for me, uh, greatest actresses of all times. And it was like, as soon as I saw her in this role with Chris Cooper, and then that sequence when them talking about just, you know, just catching up with each other and then her kind of like, you, you, you see that flareness of her getting upset, like all your crap is in the, in the back if you're still trying to get it. It just made me, it just reminded me that like, this is someone who just strikes so much attraction on screen and you're, it's so magnetic with the performance. It, one of the reasons why I think this cast ensemble just as a whole is just, pretty good i don't think like all of the performances are like in some of the individual performances here are like all timers but there are some things that people are doing in this ensemble that just it, it, it just all comes up and wraps really neatly in a bow yeah for sure um you know when we got to the end of the film i was like that was yeah, I thought that was, you know, it, it was, even though, like I said, I, I was more impressed with the first half than the second. I did like how it, it did wrap itself up at the end, and he didn't, you know, sugarcoat us, like, you know, give me your hand, uh, audience, and I'll I'll give you all the answers. I was like, that was mm-hmm. good. So, um, yeah, that's the, that is our episode for Lone Star. Uh, Lone Star. I, yeah. Uh, I want to say thank you again, Isaiah, <laughs> for dedicating your time to be here on the show. Um, before we sign off, is there anything you'd like to plug in or where our listeners can follow you along? You can follow me on Twitter at Isabod13 capital I. All right. Uh, you can follow me and the show through Linktree under at Matthew995, where you can follow along on all my social media accounts, such as Twitter, Letterboxd, and on the same side, I've also provided a link for where you can listen to more of the episodes of the show. Uh, you know, it is starting the, it was, it's the beginning of 2024. Um, I'll try my best to keep the, up this bi-weekly schedule uh, that I've, I've been doing since uh, like June or July of last year. So uh, just bear with me for, while well, I try to get uh, uh, more episodes running over the next uh, couple months. But yeah, if you're interested in being in the hot seat, like Isaiah has here, Uh, Let me know, and hopefully we can arrange that happening soon. In the meantime, we hope you guys enjoyed listening to this episode, and we hope to see you at the movies. Take care.